You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Film sales are down and most of the processing labs I used to patronize are long gone and it's understandable. Digital cameras and the pictures they take keep getting better and better. What's interesting is that there are also a growing number of photographers who've been tinkering with imaging technologies that predate film, some dating back to the earliest days of photography. These processes include platinum printing, daguerreotypes, calotypes, tintypes, bromoil, carbon, cyanotypes, gun bichromate, palladium, and others. This is a world in which you are an active participant every step of the way. There's no such thing as automatic or program mode when it comes to alternative process photography. Today, John Harrison and I have two guests in our studio. Jeffrey Berliner is the executive director of the Penumbra Foundation and the Center for Alternative Photography, a nonprofit organization dedicated to photographic arts and education. Jeff also owns what has to be the largest collection of old school brass lenses on the planet, and he can tell you the history and serial number of each and every one of them. John and I recently spent a few hours at the Penumbra Foundation. The moment you step through the doors, you're immediately taken back in time. Steampunk is an appropriate word to describe the atmosphere, and everywhere you look, people are working with tools and techniques that defy the march of time, and you can taste the passion. Also joining us today is photographer Jolene Lupo, who actively works with many of these processes. We'll talk to her about her work. She's also into spirit photography, which I guarantee you we will touch upon later in the show. Before we start, just a reminder, we appreciate all the buzz and feedback from you guys, our listeners. So tweet us at BHPhotoVideo with hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. Welcome, everybody. Jeff, let's start off. What's the mission of the Penumbra Foundation? What's the story here? The mission is to maintain the relevancy of early and historical photographic processes. And we basically say it's the uh, maintaining the art and science of photography uh, with the idea that it can be applied in various different ways. As you mentioned, the digital marches on. There are fewer photo labs uh, around. There is film disappearing. But of late, there's been a resurgency of film. And one major thing we do is to maintain the ability for artists who want to work in analog to be able to do it if film disappears. So mm-hmm. that's one major part of it. Uh, the other part of it is that as digital continues, the medium of digital, I call it flattening. It's one particular medium that everybody has to sort of fit into that medium. It's sort of constricting. Um, it's sharp. It's saturated. Most of the work is done outside of camera. It's not done, it's done after capture. It's done in Photoshop, Lightroom, and other uh, types of digital uh, manipulation. And that doesn't suit every artist or photographer. So the idea is to maintain and present the ability for photographers to have other processes other than digital. The other part of what we do is to maintain these processes for educational purposes. So even if you're a digital photographer, you want to be a better digital photographer, you have to understand the fundamentals of photography itself. So you understand what shadow is, what light is, what f-stop is, how to manipulate a a captured image on film uh, so that when you understand those aspects of photography, they can be applied um, when you're using a digital camera. So it's an educational tool as well. And I, I do feel that it informs all types of photography. If you learn the historical photographic processes from Daguerre all the way through traditional film, um, that only helps you be a better photographer no matter what medium or what kind of equipment you use. And I know you guys offer 
workshops and, and classes, but do you offer classes in, let's call it in roll film photography, 35 millimeter, or is it just straight alternative processes? Um, no, we teach film. Um, uh, film is becoming more and more popular amongst uh, younger folk. They are picking up old cameras at flea markets on eBay, 35 millimeter, Canon, Nikon. Um, we have a guy in our building, um, uh, Frank Rubio, the camera doctor. I'd like to give him a plug because he does incredible work. He fixes everything from a 35 millimeter camera. He does digital sensor cleaning. He does large format. And yeah, we, I saw, we saw his, uh, his yeah. workshop. It's incredible. Um, <laughs> he used to be at Lens and Repro, which is an, unfortunately another um, uh, wonderful establishment that's gone. So tell us a little bit about how the foundation got up and running. The number was founded about 10 to 12 years ago by a man named Eric Taubman. Mm -hmm. And he ran and owned uh, several photo labs for the better part of, you know, 30 years. And he had an interest in um, alternative photographic uh, processes and history of photography. His wife is a well-known uh, wet play collodion photographer named uh, Joni Sternbach. Uh, she does a wonderful series of uh, surfers in tintype and she travels around the world. Um, I first studied um, wet play collodion with her. She was teaching a workshop at the ICP. I took um, that workshop with her about 10 years ago. And I was bitten by the bug. You know, I just had to uh, continue. And, and that was a time that was like sort of the, the early, mid-2000s. Uh, and um, digital photography was becoming so prevalent that people were really throwing away their cameras. I remember having, you know, Nikons and Canons. And, you know, they were literally throwing them away. You can and what, pick so them what, up out of the dumpster. What would you say gave you the bug? What was it about it that caught you? And, and were you then a photographer? Were you... Had you gone digital at that point, or I had I had been a photographer. Um, I had digital cameras primarily for documenting things. If I was putting something on eBay, um, I didn't take digital photography that seriously. I really enjoyed analog photography, film, and I was getting more and more into large format. Mm -hmm. I liked the idea of having control over my composition, having movements, uh, being more technical in my approach to composition and um, and correcting the image from the camera. I also like the idea that the larger the, the negative you got, the more resolution you got. I also was collecting early uh, photographic lenses and I wanted to use those lenses for the formats that they were meant. And at that time, people were throwing away lenses. I remember, I think I went on eBay and you know, around 2002 or 2001, and there were five huge brass lenses and I think um, I think I paid a hundred dollars for the five of them, and I was even wondering that I paid too much for these <laughs> at that time. But when you get these lenses in your hand, you start looking at the history, you look at the kinds of images that were made with these. You say, "Wow, I would like to do that." I was very interested in the pictorialist movement, um, the photo secession movement. Uh, soft focus lenses were were used for those types of images, and I wanted to try that, and I wanted to actually uh, use those lenses for the processes and the formats they were meant to use. So that's when I started taking wet plate clothing um, workshops and other photographs. I took a calotype, uh, which is a paper negative. A workshop that's uh, William Henry Fox Talbot's original process. So I wanted to learn these processes, and they really informed me. They helped me understand photography. They slowed me down. They made me think about uh, what I was taking a picture of and, and what my composition, what my subject was. Uh, I just want to just point out um, the reason I was so smitten by wet plate clothing photography is because as a New Yorker, I like immediacy. People think that some of these hmm. processes take a long time. It takes a long time to learn it, but once you get up to speed, um, you know, you can pop out a 10 type in 10, 15 minutes. It's, it's like a Polaroid. It's, it's like you know, instant gratification. It's like an addiction. You know, it's like you just want to, you know, make <laughs> do more. Another and, one, do another, do another one. one. And um, 
It's interesting to hear 15 minutes being quick turnaround at a time when people look at their LCD, and if the image doesn't come out in four seconds or three seconds, they right. get impatient and trade into the next camera. Right. So. It, it's all about, you know, the leading up relative. to it. Yeah, it's all relative, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's referred to now as the Polaroid of the 19th century. I mean, it really means that you, yes. can, you can go in there and you can set up your subject. You have enough time to work with your subject, or if you're doing it in the field, um, you, you have an idea of what you want to photograph, and then you... You pour your plate, you sensitize it, you you take it out, you develop it, you stop it, wash it, and then you have a, an image you can look at. And that's pretty instant if you want to, you know, make changes right then and there. With film, you know, digital is a whole other thing. But with film, you have to shoot it, you have to develop it, you have to then contact it, you have to look at it, dodge and burn all this stuff. So there's a much longer process involved. But to get back to Eric, you know, Eric was very interested in sharing his love and his interest in, in early photographic uh, processes. So we started teaching workshops and having workshops. And he would invite, especially artists working in those processes. And that's a very important distinction to make. There are many people teaching these processes who learn them online or um, they don't do the entire process. Um, and uh, he was interested in finding artists who are using it for their own work and did them in an historical way. So they learned how a platinum print would have been made by Stieglitz, and they then used the appropriate materials, chemicals. For instance, Carl Weiss, who is our platinum printer and instructor, he teaches the workshop um, using uh, teaching people how to develop their negative for platinum, which has a huge dynamic range. So there are a lot of very black blacks, very white white, and he teaches how to uh, develop, uh, how to expose and develop a negative using pyro, which was the original processing chemicals, so that you maintain detail across the entire range. And unless you understand how to expose the, the negative and how to um, process the negative, um, you're not going to take advantage of the complete range of the beauty of the platinum print. And that's how we teach all of our processes. We want people to have the historical context. We want people to understand that this is how it was done in the 19th century. And then you can then go yourself with that knowledge. And if you want to modify it, adapt it for your own particular work, you can do that. So there a lot of the things well. that you're talking about are actually is parallel to contemporary photography. Today we have the option of putting it onto program or automatic or whatever, or, or just touch the button and take a picture and it somehow it comes out perfectly. But if you're really learning photography, even with a, a brand new camera, you put it onto manual, you do have control of shutter speeds, you do have f-stops, you do have all of these controls, and once you learn how to do those, it's the same principles as working cameras from yes. 150 years ago. Photography is photography. I mean, just on that point, the basic photographic principles still apply to digital photography. Photography. Something I'm curious about, uh, again, we, John and I walked through your facility uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and it was, it was a terrific experience. It's easy to imagine, especially if you haven't been there and just listening to what we're talking about right now, that anybody who goes into your facility, who participates, who's into this stuff, is walking around in Victoria Garb with uh, big wooden <laughs> uh, uh, tripods and cameras, right. and they can't take a picture without putting a black cloth over their head. Um, <laughs> I would imagine the reality is different. What percentage of the people who participate, who come to your foundation to learn these processes, are actually using contemporary cameras, be them digital or film, and then outputting their imagery using these old techniques as opposed to people who are, are again, coding you know, their own everything? That, well, that's a good question. And I think the one distinction I want to make between us and other institutions, other institutions that teach this who really want to do it by the book and they really want to go back in time and they really, the Civil War reenactors were some of the first people who brought back wet play clothing photography because they would have a wagon on their Civil War reenactment field. So they uh, would have a guy making tintypes of the soldiers and they want everything to be as accurate as possible. Um, we're more interested in supporting artists working in these processes. So most of the people, in fact, most of the people that we advise in terms of um, equipment, I recommend 
new equipment and inexpensive equipment. You don't have to spend a lot of money uh, to get set up. You don't need to buy a you know a 19th century lens for a thousand or two thousand dollars. You can find a Petzl portrait, a Magic Lantern Petzl portrait lens, which is the same kind of lens used for a Magic Lantern or projector. Um, put it on a speed graphic, and that whole kit can cost you under seven hundred fifty dollars. Um, you can once you understand how you're using a lens cap, so your shutter doesn't have to work. Um, you can get you can get an inexpensive tripod. You can get a, a majestic tripod for fifty or hundred bucks. The chemistry doesn't cost a lot of money. So we advise people, and there's you know there's a company called Shamanix, which they make wonderful cameras, but they also make a wet plate holder that um, actually just needs to be modified a little bit with a little bit of you know spar urethane on the inside. But that's ready to go, basically out of the box, and that's like hundred and fifteen bucks. So for a thousand bucks in total. You're, you can be up and going. You can build a dark box out of a cardboard box and just get a cloth to put over it. And you can do it very inexpensively. There are some people who really fetishize their equipment. And I'm not going to say about one of them because I love equipment. Don't get me wrong. Um, We've been to those back yeah. rooms. Um, but, you know, you know, my interest in equipment is not only the thing and, and the object. It's the history. It's the development. It's um, understanding the, 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 the formulas and the development and of the photographic lens. Of the interest that you have, how much is history? And how much is photography? Is it fair to separate? Can you, can you make that distinction? Yeah. Um, I think if, and, and I'll use this term a certain way, you know, um, but if you're a thinking photographer, they're intertwined. You cannot separate the two. If you're interested in photography uh, and if you're interested in anything, I guess you can, you know, any subject you're interested in, um, to understand it fully, you have to understand the history of it. Well, for whatever it's worth, I mean, I know a lot of people who are technical geeks and, and their technique is amazing and their pictures are boring. You actually yeah. do take very, very good portraits Thank and you photographs, very much. so I could, I could vouch for that. I, I have to leave it up to other people whether my images are good or not. I enjoy doing it, and um, whether uh, you know, you're a good photographer or not is, is really not in one person's own hands. But I do use my lenses, and you know, people say, why do you have so many? Well, you know, uh, I think... Um, you know, Jolene will attest that when we need a lens for a particular job or a project or a format or a particular look, I have every one. They're uh, paintbrushes. They're paintbrushes. It depends on what kind of stroke you need on that particular. Uh, it's a yeah, very good analogy because if you look at a, if you look at a, you know, a, a, an artist, a, a painter, they have hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of paintbrushes, and each one does something. And that's different. not because they're too lazy to clean them off. They each <laughs> no. one has a particular exactly. need, and that's so what a lens is. Can we talk a bit more about what Penumbra has to offer? I know there's sure. workshops. I know they have sure. a tintite studio. Uh, yeah. So Penumbra is a photographic arts and education organization. We support artists working in these processes, and we teach those interested in these processes for various reasons, everything from those interested in just learning the process from a historical perspective. We just had a daguerreotype workshop uh, this past weekend with a guy named Mike Robinson. He's probably the best practitioner or technician of the daguerreotype process using uh, the mercury vapor process. And many um, conservators will take our workshops, especially if they want to understand how to conserve um, and preserve photographic images and to identify them. They have to know the process and understand it. So there's that. Uh, there are artists who want to learn the process to to use them to because they have a particular vision. And you never know which process is going to work with what particular artist. Perfect example is Sally Mann. Um, Sally Mann does wet plate clothing photography. And that's a perfect um, combination of somebody who has a a unique vision, and that process really suits her vision perfectly. And we have people who actually teach. Um, Morgan Post, actually the wonderful photographer, uh, one of our instructors, he teaches digital negative, so that you can take the, with the right with the right 
um, approach and profiles, you can take a piece of acetate and print digitally onto that the size that you want and then contact print it. And the technology has gotten to a point where those uh, digital negatives are really quite dense and, um, and a beautiful tonal range and, uh, and gradation in tone. Um, so uh, there's a digital aspect to what we do as well. Oh, we have a wonderful library program, Eric, and the, and, the, and the organization has a huge collection of early photographic manuals. Yeah, perhaps those are impressive. The, yeah. <laughs> perhaps the largest. That's the most series. impressive wall of photography books I've seen. Yeah, and they're not, I mean, there are some monographs, but they're mostly early photographic yeah. manuals. And for the most part, history of photography has ignored those because they're difficult. Who wants to look through technical manuals? Well, those interested in history of photography, if you really want to understand, I mean, I call history, but history of photography basically a jigsaw puzzle with infinite pieces. Mm. And these, these particular uh, books and manuals help fill in some of those pieces and help us understand the history of photography from that. I mean, the history of photography is not only uh, art history and images that were made, but but I, art and science, they have to come together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, we also have a lecture series. Uh, we have a wonderful um, uh, coordinator, program coordinator who came to us from the ICP, Leandro Bijado, um, who puts together this wonderful lecture series, seven to 10 artists every semester, emerging artists and those who are mid-career um, to- All working in alternative processes? Mostly alternative processes. We don't limit it to that, but sometimes they use digital, sometimes they use large cameras, sometimes they use film. We also have the Tintype Studio is a wonderful um, program. It's actually uh, a studio, a, uh, actually walking like a Matthew Brady style studio. Mm -hmm. and it's, we, a, it's a trip to walk by the window and look in. That's how I discovered your place. I was over at LTR and I happened to be walking out. I looked in the window and go, what is this? I thought it was one of those little pop-up little right. installations you find around Midtown where like, you know, for one week somebody sets up some obscure look. I right. know this is the real deal. How'd you get the name? The number is a, you know, we started at the Center for Alternative Photography, which is, you know, a pretty fitting name, but there are other organizations called that. And, and that was for when we were for-profit, just workshops. Uh, but when we became a nonprofit organization, Eric said, you know, I think we need something that really expresses more than just teaching workshops. And um, he always loved the, the term penumbra. Penumbra is an astronomical phenomenon that's essentially an eclipse that shows great light and great shadow at the same time. And that's what photography is, shadow and light. Um, and at, we chose the term foundation because a foundation is an organization that gives away money. And non most nonprofit organizations don't give away. They may be nonprofit. They don't have any shareholders. The profits don't shift, you know, don't uh, sift up. But a foundation gives away uh, money. And um, I felt that it was important that we give uh, so giving away a free education, doing outreach, um, and outreach in other ways. We have some free workshops, especially for kids at Photoville and places like that. But eventually the BFA MFA program is the idea of giving away a free education. And I mean a very top-level education from early photography all the way through digital. The kids that come through our program, I want to have um, a better education they can get in any school. And it's really based on uh, my grandfather went to Cooper Union. And he got a free education. He was a photographer for the New York Times. And I wanted to sort of maintain that legacy right. and have a free That's education. Great. So one important one important program we have at uh, uh, Penumbra is the Artisan Residency Program. It was put together by um, uh, Leandro Bijardo, who is our program's coordinator. And essentially, we've been raising funds. We're having an auction, which will be online uh, within the next month or two. And I please take a look. And many very well-known artists have, uh, have sent in their work uh, to support this program. And basically, we're going to have, um, starting with two artists who will apply for this uh, program, who will be supported with funding and using our facilities. And they'll also teach uh, and have a lecture um, in a way to support, especially young artists, emerging artists, uh, who need help to get their work out there. Um, and also have a place to do their work in New York City. Um, so please take a look an at an artist this. in residency program. It's called an artist in residency program. Okay. The idea of moving forward is to have six um, artists a year, um, each doing about six weeks 
um, for that program. So that's important. Um, the education I mentioned um, uh, moving forward, we're going to be doing more outreach. Uh, so this and is a great growth period for Penumbra. Great right growth now. period. It sounds uh, like it. I mean, uh, on, on all fronts. And one more thing worth mentioning is that we have wonderful studio spaces that are rented commercially and, and that Penumbra gets to use as well. It's called Highlight Studios. And we have a North Light Studio. We actually cut the roof of our building off um, facing north and we built a 20-foot bank of windows with non-UV glass so that you can do alternative processes. I think it's the only type available commercially North Light Studio uh, that can be rented uh, for photography. A lot of food photographers use it, commercial photographers. And What's, the, what's the advantage of the North Light? Uh, North Light is is the most diffused, beautiful light that you can get um, because it's facing north. The sun is behind you, so it's not strong spectral light. Um, and it's the longest arc of the sun during the day. So you have um, the longest light possible and you have the most diffuse, beautiful light. So all the original daguerreotype studios, tintype studios in New York along 3rd Avenue, the, um, along the Bowery, uh, Broadway, were all these wonderful North Light studios. Rooftop North Light studios are the big deal beginning photography exactly and we have one and we have one so it's wonderful to have that um available okay we're going to take a short break and we come back we're going to talk with jolene and find out more about her and her work We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We are back. Okay, Jolene, in addition to the running the Tintype Studio over at the Foundation, mm-hmm. what's, what kind of photography do you do? How did you get into it? When was the first time you looked at a photograph or a camera and said, ooh, I want one, I need to? <laughs> uh, well, now I work in a variety of processes, everything from wet plate collodion to digital. Um, and for me, I'm not so much dedicated to any one process uh-huh. as much as I'm really trying to find the right process for the type of style that I'm trying to achieve. Very inspired by spiritualism, spirit photography from the 1860s, and a very cinematic way of storytelling. Your, your pictures are very, very, they, they're very, very cinematic in that Thank sense. You. It looks like you're doing a little stage play or something mm-hmm. like that. What got you into spirit photography? Well, um, I actually I actually found a book called The Strange Case of William Mumler, Spirit Photographer. Um, And this goes back into the history of spear photography a little bit. So it was really a a large movement in the 1860s. And you have to imagine um, it was at a time when people didn't really understand photography fully, but they knew that it could see more than the human eye could. X-ray photography was starting. Also, the Civil War had just happened. People lost a lot of loved ones. And this wave of spiritualism was really sweeping the country. You know, all of a sudden, people were having seances in their houses. There were rappings being heard. Um, and this one photographer in particular in Boston says he doesn't know how it started, but the spirits just started appearing in his images. So he started marketing himself as a spirit photographer. And he made a killing. Uh, he even had Mary Todd Lincoln with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln yeah, appear in I've one of the photos. photos. Sure. Um, and so it was really creating a phenomenon. And a lot of people were trying to prove that this was fraud. He wasn't doing what he said he was. Um, and it actually ended up coming to a trial in 1869 where they were saying, you know, you're not uh, you're you're giving somebody something, you know, that's a little fraudulent. Um, and they actually listed out nine ways that he could have done this. Now, you know, it's easy to look at these photos and think maybe it's just double exposure, right. you know, oh, yeah. things like that. But the best part is that they couldn't prove how he did it. So he gets off. And in the end, it doesn't really matter how he did it. It's all about this slick kind of sleight of hand. And you have, and it's snake also- Snake oil. Snake Visual oil, yeah. Snake oil. Before the age of the internet. I okay. mean, he's really sh- proving to these people that, or you know, or he's really- 
he's really getting people to believe that loved ones are appearing in these photos. You know, I think there's something really magical about that. My first foray into spirit photography was actually using high-speed photography. And it was a seance scene uh, with actually a bursting water balloon in the middle that was... I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and it kind of evolved from there. I think very early on, I was really uh, inspired by the aesthetic look of these processes and the formal qualities without even realizing what I was referencing. And the more that I delved into the history of photography and really started looking into what process looked like what, the more I started thinking about working in them and, and moving my work more in that direction. So are you working tongue-in-cheek? Uh, yes, <laughs> of course. Is that a fair question? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm very much interested in the sleight of hand. I think a lot of photography involves that, whether or not it's first period photography or not. You know, I mean... Look at the advertising photos you see for McDonald's, for oh. instance. You know, I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> so let me ask you, has anybody ever looked at your photographs and actually approached you about trying to reach? Yes. <laughs> really? Now, yeah. how do you handle that? Well, you know, I'm not quite sure how to handle that because I really love, I, I love two different qualities of the spirit photographs. I love the... The symbolism that's in them. Uh -huh, um, I love uh -huh. those early photos where people really feel hopeful that they're seeing this loved one and this, you know, spiritual connection, this this um, exploration of spirituality. But I also love the campiness in them. You know, I also pull a lot of inspiration from like B horror movies from the 1950s. <laughs> um, and the next project that I plan on doing is actually a little bit of a a separation from the wet play collodion work, and I'm actually trying to do more of a, a black and white series, kind of very cinematic. Pulling, pulling inspiration from these old campy, you know, black and white movies, but also from kind of like whodunit movies and, and really staging a large kind of production. And her equipment gets larger and larger yeah. and the lights get bigger and bigger. <laughs> I just want to point out that, you know, photography is magic in a sense. Mm -hmm. And what Jolene is doing is sort of, is, you know, she's actually, actually photographed magicians and her work deals with this idea of magic. So there's sort of interplay between photography is magic and her work being magic. Um, and, you know, Jolene is, is, is so good at it that she's actually teaching a workshop now at yes. Penumbra uh, <laughs> well, on spirit photography. This so coming October. And do you shoot program. the photos at the Tintide Studio? Yeah. That's what you do. Yeah, yeah. we actually have also even had um, a spirit photography night in the Tintype Studio. We usually do some <laughs> kind of themed programming around ha Halloween. Halloween. Um, yeah. Definitely stay tuned because I've got some <laughs> things planned for this year. Um, I subscribe to your newsletter, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be watching for these things. <laughs> definitely. Um, and there, there's a great quote that I read in one of these books that says, um, it's the photographer that establishes the relationship between technology and the occult with a sleight of hand and a parlor trick that is made in the name of levity. And I feel like that really is um, an overarching theme in my work and in what I strive to do with it. We're talking about all of these, these ancient techniques and things that go back that are archaic and historic. It's worth mentioning that both Jeff and Jolene have taken out their phones and taken pictures during the course of this. <laughs> of course. Yes. So we are, we, are, we are talking about one thing, but at the same, in the background, everyone's hamming it up with their phones. So I think, I think if Daguerre had, had a cell phone, he'd, he'd be using it. Oh, these spirit <laughs> photographers would be using every tool at hand, you Absolutely. know, and um, especially in the Tintype studio, we're really merging new and old technology. I mean, we're doing this process from the 1850s, but merging it with modern lighting. I mean, we're using pro photos in the studio and um, and use digital quite often. I mean, everything from digital negatives to photo docking the images to go on the Internet later. I mean, you know, if we're not um, using the digital tools that we have at hand, I mean, we're really just kind of doing a disservice to ourselves. I think, in this day and age, you know. And, and well, I think it's fair to say that 
digital access and let's call it the revolution for a simple term has made has brought an interest to some of these old processes yes. no i mean isn't that fair to say yeah and i think that one of the best qualities you know or one of the things that draws a lot of people to the tintype is the tactile quality of it yes. i mean it's a physical oh, yeah. object and it's something that is going to outlive all of us here and you know i've once heard somebody say who wants to inherit granny's hard drive right. it's so true <laughs> i mean what are we going to give to our there children there will be anything left know? on it it'll deteriorate <laughs> I just want, I mean, on that exact point, you know, it is tactile and there's also this idea that the hand is in these images. You actually see the craft involved and there's a process by which, and there's a learning process by which you're constantly improving and building on what you learned before. Uh, I'm not saying that's not true in digital, but there's something wonderfully contemplative about going into the dark room and working with your process and being Absolutely. with yourself and being in your thoughts, which is a very different experience than sitting in front but of a computer. But how does that differ though from just, uh, you know, from... 35 millimeter and, and silver nitrate, you know, darkroom work. Uh, is there something that you can kind of point to that really distinguishes the process? Um, um, yeah, well, each process has its own particularities. That's number one. So I think 35 millimeter, medium format, and any kind of film process has its own particularity that uh, people are engaging in and learning and building on um, in that process. You say film. Film is a generic term, okay, but shooting with a 35 millimeter camera is different than shooting from a medium format yes, yeah, or right. four by five or 1620. Yes, yeah. Right. They right. have the different process and right. different look. Absolutely. And they're all film. They're all yeah, film. I feel like a person's temperament comes into this a lot too especially yeah. with wet plate. Yes. I mean, you know, it's the people that I think excel at it the most are really little type A OCD, but yes. also prone to creative <laughs> or the, problem or the solving. <laughs> or the opposite. Sometimes they're the complete opposite. You oh, know? yeah, yeah. But you know, it's all, they're all, again, it, it comes like we, like we mentioned brushes before. These are all tools. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they all have their different effects. Right. And, and, and again, I think one, one of the neat things, and, and I think it's something that people who only will take a digital camera or, or only their phone and they think that this is all I need to do images. Yes, you can do a lot with each one of these tools, but the more you, more tools that you use, be they cameras, be they lenses, be they processes, it adds more into your familiarity with the overall craft and gives you more things to reach into, to borrow from, to apply, so that even right. if you're shooting digitally, if you, you have a greater power, you have a greater yeah. power. Exactly. Let me use that. Apply as that. A, uh, you know, from there, Jolene, how, how would you approach, let's say, one subject and, and choose one process compared to another. Can you give us an example? Sure. So recently I, I did a few photos, um, promotional images for a mentalist, uh, magician, if you will. Um, he was actually going to be recreating a Victorian seance mm -hmm. um, in October. And so we had, we shot it on glass negative. The, you know, there is such a rich, rich history of the spirit photo shot in this process. And I ended up printing them out as albumin prints hoping to make them into cabinet cards in the end. I think it's it's a really nice way of kind of giving this sort of um, historical tie-in, this yes. like kind of like takeaway, like the tie-in with the Yeah, you're adding a dramatic, a dramatic, a 19th century dramatic element to what is really a dramatic event. The cabinet card was, was basically the iPhone of the day. People mm -hmm. would pass them around. There was no TV, there was no radio. There was, they would um, share images um, with each other um, of, of historical figures, famous people, uh, and the cabinet card, some of them were very elaborate. They had gold, um, depending on how much money you had, how much you wanted to spend. They had gold edges, gilding. And it's a great way of really uh, mixing text and image, you mm -hmm, know, so you could mm -hmm. really kind of title the person's name, have the photo, um, give a little bit of information of, you know, what it's for. But yeah, I find, you know, for me, the most successful work really marries the, the process and the concept. 
I think, yeah, for that, for the magician work, um, the albumin prints were kind of an obvious tie-in with that. Um, Why would that be? Oh, just because of the history, you uh-huh. know, um, it's sort of a modern way of reinventing something that people have done before, you know, through more of a contemporary lens. Okay. Um, and also tying in the sleight of hand through the shooting with also the sleight of hand that he does in his performances. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to point out there are many people who, who practice these processes because they enjoy doing it. They're not particularly making art. Um, they enjoy it and that's fine. I think, you know, what Penumbra is, and what I'm interested in is really supporting artists and their vision. I think there are a lot of people that come in and ask us, you know, can't you just put a filter on this? You know, yeah. I mean, between me and you, well, you is, can, is there really you know? a difference? You know, and, and by the time <laughs> I you gotta lead... get back to work, right? Type okay. of thing. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but by the time you you lead them through, you know, what the process is, you put one in their hand, they're ready to book a session. I mean, it's just it really is a special thing, and I think uh, you also kind of have to see it and feel it to completely understand it, it. A little bit is lost in the digital representation of some of these prints and the tintype process and all of that. And it is, it is an experience. And the one thing I want to point out that everybody who's at Penumbra, everybody who's there loves being there. They love doing uh, their work. I encourage them to do their own work. Uh, and when they teach, they're sharing what they love with other people. It's just not dialed in. It's not by the book. There's a lot of collaboration, even with the students. Sometimes students bring in a particular way of thinking. Um, it really is a wonderful place to learn. It's an environment that is really built around learning and sharing of knowledge information. Okay, we're going to take another short break. We come back, we're going to talk about the different alternative processes. If you'd like to reach out to us with your questions or comments, email us at podcast at bhphoto.com. Okay, we are back. Let's talk about some of the prices. Could you go down in some order? Uh, let's start with the ones that you 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 handled down at Penumbra. Well, we handled just about every historical process, starting with daguerreotype. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we we taught a daguerreotype uh, workshop with uh, Mike Robinson, and that was the mercury process. That was the original process that daguerre offered to the world. Now, quickly, for, for free. daguerreotypes actually never dry; they remain. A, a liquid yeah, never, suspension, correct? Well, they're not quite liquid. They're 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 vape, is it, vapor. Is, is yes. va- well, va- is vapor interacting with silver? So, um, the daguerreotype is a uh, clad piece of copper with a very highly polished piece of silver on top of it, um, which is like a mirror. And then that um, that piece of metal is sensitized um, with bromine and iodine, which are salts, types of of salts which are attaching to the silver and sensitizing the plate. It is then put into a camera and developed. The exposures were very long. Um, I think sometimes, you know, 20 seconds to a minute, depending, or more, depending on the the light source and how how much you stop down the lens. And then you take it out of the camera and you would develop it using vaporized mercury that is at about 135 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And that vaporized mercury, um, which is in a vapor form, not a liquid form, is developing the plate takes about 12 minutes, eight to 12 minutes. Uh, And then you have the, um, and then once you remove it from the heat, it's no longer vaporized, it's in a a dry form. Um, You then put it uh, on a special stand and you put uh, gold chloride liquid on it to both bring up the contrast and seal it so that it's uh, archival and then it's put behind glass. So oh, that's so pretty easy. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, 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 it's one of the most difficult processes, but it still yields one of the sharpest. Um, it's I like ASA1. Ask, so. I've, been t- I've been told that it is might be among, it, it's amongst the 
sharpest images that you can get. It's grainless. It, it, it's almost grainless, but it's like ASA-1, you know, and below, you know. So um, wonderful uh, images, and these images survive to this day, and they're incredibly sharp, and the tonal range is, is, is beautiful, and they actually have this, you know, wonderful image. It's called an image object. They have a wonderful quality um, to them. They're like an artifact that you're holding in your hand. They're really magnificent. They're also they're monochrome, and but some people added color tints to they them. They did. There was, but that's not, that, that was on top of it, so it's a whole art. There's actually, there's actually it's supposedly a color process um, of the Derek daguerreotype that um, a guy in my thing was Octavius Hill, I think was his name. I think he developed a colored daguerreotype that till to this day they haven't figured out how he did it, supposedly. But callotype is the other. So 1839, the, both of these processes were invented at the same, same year. Uh, William Henry Fox Talbot was a paper negative. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you would put silver nitrate uh, on basically on a piece of paper and then you would um, you would develop that. You would shoot it in camera, develop it, also a very difficult process, but you can make reproductions on salted paper or albumin paper um, to get, you know, direct positive contact prints, and that was the precursor to film. He did not offer that that to the world for free. It was patented and licensed, and you had to pay him. So what was going to proliferate was the daguerreotype, because all you had to do was get the equipment, then you can practice it without paying a licensing fee. Um, the next process was play Clodian, uh, Frederick Scott Scott Archer, I mean, that was 1852. There was, there was actually development up to that point. But what played Clodian democratized photography. Um, it was much less expensive uh, to make a tintype than a daguerreotype. So it meant that just about anybody, like Billy the Kid, could have um, his tintype made. It was due during the Civil War. There were three expressions of it. There was uh, the tintype, which was on a piece of metal, actually iron. It was called ferrotype originally. It was never originally on tin. The idea, the, the theory is that people use tin snips to cut the plates oh, to put them in the box. That's okay. where tintype came from. Um, um, there were, you know, just about anybody can walk into a studio. These studios proliferated, and you can make a tintype. You can make a, 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 uh, an ambrotype, which is a tintype on glass, and then you would paint the black. So that was a positive and a glass negative. But Julia Margaret Cameron and Nadar and other photographers of the period would use cart. They would make carte de visite, which are the four lens, you know, four uh, cards. Lincoln was photographed that way, and then you can print that and make four cards or four images uh, on one using with salted paper albumin um, uh, using that glass plate negative. So those are the three expressions of what plate clothing. And then as time went on, you had dry clothing for a little while, a couple of years that didn't last long. The dynamic range and the contrast was not very good. And then dry plate, um, which is basically a film emulsion, which is a suspension of silver gelatin, a silver in the gelatin, which meant that you can take it out dry um, instead of, you know, taking your, all your camera and, and, and doing it wet. I mean, that was a precursor to film. Eventually went on roll film with Kodak and the brownies. And it was also necessary to have it on um, celluloid or something flexible to put into a movie camera. You can't put glass through a movie camera. Um, and then there were a few other processes like autochrome, which was a uh, black and white color process. Uh, and and then, of course, film, traditional film. Um, and there was uh, ortho uh, um, ortho um, graphic film, which was didn't have the complete dynamic range of panchromatic, orthochromatic, and then panchromatic. So panchromatic, everything to, was. You know, I just have this image of my of a listener sitting there scribbling away frantically yeah. as you're going. Yeah. Through. Well, if I were to you know walk into Penumbra to, to yeah. start, what, where would I start? What would be the first that's a good process question. that uh, a newbie would? Um, uh, I think would jump on. I would obviously say wet plate clothing yeah, photography. I, I mean, it's hands on. I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but you know, the thing about wet plate clothing, you can learn how to make a negative and make a tintype. Um, uh, and you also, you're, you're, you're starting from scratch there too. You're taking the basic yes. materials and you're, yes. you're coating the papers, you're sensitizing right. them. So this is 
all hands on. It's not like you know, right. we give you ten dollars and you pull three sheets out of a box. <laughs> right. No, you right. make yeah. Go and ahead. in that way, you know, it's not reliant at all on film companies continuing to make film or large corporations. I mean, Point. you're making the whole thing from scratch, and there's mm-hmm. something really beautiful about that. Absolutely, it's like cooking. Yeah. And what cameras would you use for that? Well, I think like Jeffrey was saying before, I think it's a common misconception that you need these old cameras to do this process. You really can shoot with just about any camera. You can put a fast lens on and stick a plate into. Um, And we actually offer a workshop where we teach people how to modify existing 35 millimeter and medium format cameras to hold tintypes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we shoot with a Nikon 35, make these little plates for jewelry. They're tiny 24 by 36. We call them tiny types. (laughs) (laughs) Or medium format. I mean, you know, wonderful. any large format yeah. camera you have, you know. Um, speed graphic, crown graphic. You can graphic. make your van into a camera. Yeah. What is the best for you guys? Not the best. Well, uh, best I know that's a bad word to use in this situation, especially, but what would well, you guys use if you had to yeah. choose? Well, I your, just want to point out that you know, people can get very inventive and there's a lot of modification and it's endless, the, the camera, their equipment, and we really encourage people to use the equipment they have. You don't got to spend a lot of money and um, and be innovative. You can actually make a wet plate holder out of a film holder. Yeah, not to get held up on out. the equipment too right. much, you know? Um, and uh, we, I mean, I have every lens you can possibly imagine. We use fast lens. <laughs> I have lenses that Julie, the, the kind of lens that Julie Margaret Cameron would have used or Downmeyer lenses. I have ones that are very fast, F2.2. Um, that are about 200 millimeters. I like to use the lens that was meant for that format. I like flattering perspective. I like shallow depth of field. Um, but um, you can use, you know, a Tessar. You can use um, a modern lens, a, a Simar, um, you know, wonderful lenses for wet Are there any, any processes that um, you can't, uh, we can't do nowadays that are lost or... Uh the, yeah, the, uh, it's called instant film, Polaroid and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and Not Fuji. Not true, impossible. And Fuji. Impossible is I here. do like impossible and they're they're getting better. I, I, I do like their film. I wish they would make a peel apart, but I know they didn't get the equipment. And I yeah. think uh, that's the problem with also Fuji Instax, um, which is the film because they're not making a Fuji I used to do Polaroid transfer prints, yes, which were lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. They were beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I have I have a bunch right. of them at home. Yeah, I think, you know. And they're you know, lasting. Yeah. We have, actually have a workshop called Chemigram. Where we actually are just making cameraless. Um, that's a printing out process where you're taking chemicals and putting them on photographic paper, and you're getting these wonderful different kinds of expressions um, just with the chemicals on the paper. Then, of course, Lomography is an organization which I love because they, they're still making lens. They made a pencil portrait lens. They have this uh, Acromat lens, which is the first lens used um, for daguerreotype camera, the Chevalier Acromat lens. Uh, they're still uh, making making and selling analog cameras. They are still selling film. Uh, so, you know, they're also keeping, you know, analog alive uh, as well. And there are some processes, there's really not any process that we don't teach. There are, there are printing out processes like platinum printing, a cyanotype, Van Dyke, a uranotype, which is a process we brought back. And then there are capture and there's brome oil, but actually you different types of inks, you using brushes and different kinds of techniques to bring out that print, gum bichromate, a gum over platinum. Um, so all these printing out processes, and then there are capture processes like daguerreotype, um, and what played Clody and traditional film, calotype, um, or capture processes. And they can be, you know, you can do a calotype and then print it as a salted paper, or you can print it as a platinum print, uh, and so on and so I forth. You're also doing something. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was yeah. going to say, I think when you're just getting started, it's also important to do a little bit of research before the class and look into the accessibility of doing this process outside of the class. Mm, yeah. Because when I first got started, I wasn't sure if I wanted to dive in and do the daguerreotype class over what played collodion and just go all the way. And I'm so happy that I didn't because I'm not sure how much I would have moved on with it after. It's just, 
I mean, what am I going to set up a mercury fuming pod in my right. apartment, you know, right. but I can set up a portable dark yeah, this box is some for of the things plate. I wanted to get it. I mean, so there are things that you can do in your home yes. yeah, without and, and these processes, risk, uh, yeah, they can yeah. be restrictive in some ways. I mean, you definitely, when you're doing this long-term, you want to be weary of the safety involved yes. in them. And ventilation, I think, is the biggest issue. Um, People who shot daguerreotypes, did any of them last be, like, older than 27, 28 <laughs> well, years? I don't know if they lasted at all. Those are nasty. Uh, the, mad, the Mad Hatter comes to mind. You yeah, know, exactly, they use yes. mercury, mercury was used in vaporized form for various things, for, for gold plating, um, for, for, for making hats uh and a lot of those people went insane you know um yeah because they were exposed to this and they didn't take the property when they, they didn't realize mad as a hatter it's quite literal it's because quite literal they went, insane, hats right. went nuts at an early age right. from the chemicals um mm-hmm. i just want to point out that when we teach our workshops we teach chemical safety all of our facilities have correct um uh ventilation we have a fuming hood for the daguerreotype process um it's all very obvious there too yeah i noticed as soon as i walked through i realized you guys are taking yes, everything right you have to mm-hmm. and not only you take precaution you but we also teach people chemical safety and how to handle chemicals so that when they go and do it themselves they understand the hazards of these chemicals yeah um there are some people we do not teach uh cyanide potassium cyanide for the fixer for the wet plate clodian process in the building for insurance reasons some people want to use it i tell them is it worth the risk to maybe killing yourself um for the slight warmth and yeah. a little more dynamic range that you get from it. Well, Absolutely. Some people think Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, yes. Do it on your own, but learn <laughs> the right way to use it and wear gloves. We always tell people to wear gloves, wear a mask, um, have proper ventilation, and really understand and look at these chemicals and what the dangers are before you start. Be realistic. Be realistic. Yeah. yeah be realistic and then do it safely. And do it safely. And, then safely. and, then and that's another part of the, the learning process. Yeah. Um, I think it's great to start with a workshop as well. Yes. You know, when you start trying to teach yourself a lot of these things, I think that's one of the big elements that kind of gets put, you know, pushed to the side a little bit, you know? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, people learn on YouTube. They're not taught, chem- taught chemical safety. I get e- emails and messages from Facebook all over the place all the time. How do I do that? What chemistry do I? Mm-hmm. I say, you know what? Take a workshop. There's reason we teach them. We teach chemical safety. We teach where to get the chemicals. We teach how to handle the chemicals, how to store them. They shouldn't be stored together. They have to be stored a certain way in a particular place in a certain temperature. Do not open your ether um, in your basement with your yeah. pilot light on your boiler because ether goes, it's, 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 it's less. Very um, flammable. It's very it's flammable. It's heavier than air. It'll find that um, that pilot light and it'll blow up your house. So um, either. <laughs> Uh, an, an interesting thing, though, is that uh, when we went through uh, your facility, you showed us a camera setup that you had. It had four uh, lenses and I think six or nine lenses. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're doing uh, tintypes, capturing four or six or however right. many little successive images on one thing. And you come and the ultimate output is a GIF that's animated. Right, that's yeah. Jolene, that's all. Well, that is so, and well, I think it's really gift. important to know that this is a perfect example of, you know, you're taking something from a from hundred something years ago and you're outputting this wonderful little visual that is today. And you take, you're blending it's all of these It's that perfect mixture things. of old and new, I think. And it makes you smile and well, laugh and it's wonderful. That's, I mean, it's a one, that's a wonderful expression of collaboration and working with creative people. You know, I, got the camera, I yeah. I set it up so primarily so we can do four different exposures like a photo booth. And then when Jolene said that, so that said, wow. She took it to the next. Of course. <laughs> I said, yes. well, how wonderful is that? You know, and um, and then 
then she then she takes it and she puts it on Instagram, and you can actually see. <laughs> so um, you've got thirty years, three decades of experience, <laughs> maybe more. Of all of a and she comes in and right. within X amount of short period of time, mm-hmm. okay, all right, she's saying, "Hey, let's take it here." But, I mean, and Jeffrey and, had also taken it to the next level with the shutters that he put on the front. I mean, in the beginning, you know, people would not get their photograph taken often. You get four of them, and you give one to mom and one to grandma, and it was just a means of making right. more. Uh, but Jeffrey made little shutters in bet- in front of each lens, so you can do each one individually, sort of photo booth style, and it mm-hmm. kind of evolved through playing around with that. I mean, we all right. got a chuckle at it. Right. We, uh, That's what I'm going back to have done. I love right. it. Can I ask you quickly uh, about uh, taking your big Bertha to Yankee Stadium? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. First well, describe, because you have to paint a picture. You know, I'll just thing. mention, Alan, Alan worked at PhotoCare uh, many years ago, and there was a big Bertha in the window, and, you know, Jeff Hirsch, who's a wonderful guy, said, can I buy that camera? He said, no. <laughs> he said the same thing to yeah. me, for whatever it's worth. Right. And and I understand because, you know, the magnificent uh, cameras, but I didn't even know if it worked. But, you know, recently uh, a friend of mine who repaired these cameras passed away and his estate contacted me and said, Do you, are you interested in these cameras? And I said, absolutely. Uh, and I purchased them. They were very they were very nice to me. They didn't, you know, they didn't rake me over the coals on the cost and I couldn't afford uh, too much anyway. But, um, you know, I wanted to do justice. One of the cameras was this big birth. It's a 5 by 7 Graflex. It's a single-end reflex camera that was modified by a company called James Fritzellini, who used to work for a, a newspaper, um, so that they can put a, they would take these long aerial lenses um, that were no longer in use after World War Lo- II. Long meaning like four or five feet long and about. Well, What's the, the yeah. diameter of this thing? About the, it, the right? diameter is probably six inches and or more, more. and it's a thousand millimeter lens, mm-hmm. um, which is equivalent to a two hundred millimeter lens yes. on a thirty-five <laughs> millimeter camera. And they mounted it on there with actually separate. You can actually adjust the stop so you can have quick focus for first base. A second base, you know, pitcher's mound. And um, so when I got the camera, the first thing I did was I took it out of its, you know, basically it its coffin. In, yeah. You took it out of its coffin. <laughs> coffin. Pretty much. And I said, I actually have the tripod that it was meant to go with already um, that I had purchased many years ago. And I set it up and the shutter was a little sluggish, but it worked and I adjusted it and I did some work on it. And I said, wow, it works. And I have a friend who uh, works at the New York Yankees, Jim Petrozello, and he is uh, the, the Yankee photographer. Uh, and I said, we've been trying to do projects with the Yankees um, at some point. Nothing really worked out. And then he presented this to uh, Yankee management and said, yeah, let's do it. So on opening day, we brought the uh, Big Bertha um, with 100 sheets of 5 by 7 film mm-hmm. uh, to the press pit at Yankee Stadium on the field. And I got to shoot opening day with it. And I did the latest New York Yankees, the May issue of Yankees magazine, has those images in it. So I wish uh, everybody take a look at it. And I learned a great deal a about it. a great picture. There, there's one shot that was just outstanding you really pulled it off uh, it thank good. you it was it was it was a little bit of a learning curve but um and i was watching all the digital photographers sitting there waiting for the shot and they just hit a button and brrr, they, they did a burst of like you know 100 shots i get, had to get one shot and then i had to learn how to use it. and you know, I, I learned i really learned how to use that camera and i got a real feel for how they uh used it back in the 1940s 50s and 60s and i'm glad i brought it back to life and i i'm glad i did justice to the person i'm just wondering when when you trip the shutter did a cloud of dust go up in left yeah. field i'm just saying it's a big thing to go up and down. It's a kachunka. It's like the sound <laughs> of smell the sound, comes out of it. Exactly, the sound of one shutter clapping. Yeah. Oh man. Well, as usual, we can go on forever with this, uh, but uh, time has a way of uh, bringing things to a conclusion. Um, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jolene. Thank you, John and Jason, our producers. This has been a wonderful show. Check out Penumbra at penumbrafoundation.org, and check out Jolene's work at jolenelupo.com. And please don't forget, give us your opinions on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag 
BH Photo Podcast and rate and leave a review on iTunes. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for joining us today. 